power in investing often is not doing really flamboyant pyrotechnical stuff where you hit the ball out of the park. The thing that's really amazing is when you compound a decent clip over many, many years without disaster. This podcast contains the arguably witty banter of two friends, Skippy and Dougals, that like to debate about investing. The content is intended to be entertaining and for informational purposes only, not investment advice. You should do your own research and consult a financial professional before using any of the information in this podcast, and especially before investing. Big show today. We have William Green on the show for the second time. I don't know if it's true or not. We'll, we'll find out the answer here in a second, but we might be the first podcast that he's appeared on twice. If you don't know William Green, he wrote a fabulous book last year called Richer, Wiser, Happier. We're going to talk about that. Um, we're also going to talk about some other things. Just basic background. If you missed uh, the previous episode, which is episode 19, uh, William was born in London. He uh, did the best trifecta schools I can think about, which is Eton, Oxford, and Columbia. He's lived all over the world, former editor of Time Magazine, had great success with multiple books, helped Guy Spear write his book, and we just love Richard Weiser Happier, but we also really enjoyed our previous conversation with William. So that's why he's back. Hope you guys enjoy. William, thanks for coming on the show. Thank you. I'm delighted to be back. I, I remember having a lot of fun last, last time. I have no idea what I said last time, so I can repeat myself totally. But, uh, but I, 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 just, I just remember having a happy feeling afterwards and thinking, God, these, these guys have these crazy names, but they actually really know what they're talking about. So, uh, uh, so you managed to fool me at least. Yeah, actually, let's let's dive right in. One of the things I'm curious about uh, is just your feelings around the book's success. I don't have the exact numbers in front of me, but it's in multiple dozens of languages. You, you've been a frequent podcast guest on every podcast under the sun because of how much people love the book. And you actually started your own podcast to continue some of the themes of the book in an audio sense. Like, how do you think about that? And how does that make you feel just that the book has been so well received? It's, it's been very cheering because par partly the process of writing a book uh, for me and for most of my writer friends is pretty hellish. And so you're sitting there on your own in your study for most people for a couple of years, my case, five years, because I'm, I'm slow and obsessively perfectionist. And so, you know, I missed my deadline by two years and I just... I, I didn't take a vacation in five years. I was working so hard, so obsessively on this thing, trying to make it as good as I could. And you're, you're sitting there kind of in this state of, kind of low level panic, in my case, for five years of panic, anxiety, just thinking, oh my God, have I completely gone off the deep end? Like, why am I writing, you know, 11,000 words about this duo of guys in London who quit the hedge fund business and now giving all their money back to society. And nobody's heard of them because they were so, you know, they never gave an interview. And here am I writing, you know, for five months about them. And so you kind of have no idea whether anyone's going to be interested. And then subsequently the book comes out and people look at a chapter like that, which is about these guys, Nick Sleep and Kay Sakaria. And that's, that seems in many ways to be the most popular chapter. And you're like, well, I just took this huge risk writing about people that nobody had ever heard of, but were absolutely extraordinary. And so in a way, it's this very strange experience where you're the things that enable you to write a, a book 
are totally are totally different than the things that then enable you to market a book or bring it out into the world. And so, so you're kind of like this little badger or whatever. My, my knowledge of nature is pretty limited, so I don't know what badgers actually do. But it's like you're this little badger in the dark, you know, and then you suddenly poke your head out in the world and you're like, oh, wait, it's light again after five years. And then suddenly everyone wants to kind of talk to you and you have to describe what you've been doing. And so it's kind of a head spinning experience. And then the, the, uh, the other thing I would say, just suddenly to discover that you're getting messages from people the whole time saying that something actually moved them or had an impact on them or has changed the way they live their life, which, which I'm kind of shocked at how many, how many messages I get. I mean, it's literally been hundreds and hundreds of messages like that. There's rarely a day that goes by where you don't hear from someone saying that something's had an impact on them, either, either from the book or the podcast. That's an incredible experience because you're so you're so vulnerable and you're so exposed as the writer. You know, you're putting heart and soul into something to a degree in a way that you've never done before with anything else professionally. And then to have the world embrace it, it's incredibly heartening. And, and so then, then there's this part of me that's like kind of terrified to start doing it again <laughs> and to think, God, so I have to write another, another, another book at some point. There's a, there's a part of you that sort of, immensely heartened by this process of kind of love and embrace from the world and it and it gives you a sense of like god maybe maybe i'm worthwhile after all i'm not such a schmuck after all and then there's a part of you that's like the terror of like do, do i do i dare to go back back on the mountain again it resonates i i used to work for a business author in a former life i can't remember if i brought that up before and he would describe the writing process is going into a cave, like going into a deep, hmm. dark cave where, and then the the process that we would go through to even research, it was uh, the Bataan death march was like ah. what we called this. So it's a lot of very, uh, but macabre, I don't know what the right word is, but just dark, yeah. like a sentiment around it. But then the other side, and even in helping people, and as you mentioned, hearing people must be great. I mean, I one of the things I liked most about the book and I actually enjoy about investing overall there's the part that is the investing but it's also the part that's just about life how do you live better yeah and if you think about it the, for, for people who haven't read the book first of all shame on you for not for not <laughs> reading the book but if you think about it it's a very idiosyncratic book because in a way you're luring people in by saying look i'm going to teach you all this stuff that i've learned from all these great investors i've interviewed over the years who explain how to win this game but then what i'm really saying is but yeah, the principles that enable them to get incredibly wealthy and successful actually can help you in all of these other areas of life. So for example, someone like, like Charlie Munger, who's just going through life thinking about how to reduce standard stupidities. That, that's an incredibly powerful idea in investing, but it's actually an incredibly powerful idea in life. And so, so the book, when I was writing it, there were times where I thought, have I kind of gone nuts? Because everyone will want to hear about, you know, how to get rich. And I'm going off, you know, I would write about someone like Joel Greenblatt, for example, who made 40% a year for what 20 years, which means you turn a million dollars into something like $837 million. And so I'm explaining how to get rich based on what Greenblatt is talking about. And I'm sort of saying, look, his principles are so unbelievably simple. And then I'm saying, and actually what's really interesting is simplicity turns out to be a a master strategy for the whole of life. There are all of these ways in which simplicity helps you. When you're sitting on your own in the isolation of your study at home and you're going off and you're saying, well, look, 
if you study Occam's razor, you know, this idea in science, which again, I know nothing about, about as much as I know about badgers, <laughs> this idea, this idea that, you know, the simplest answer is usually the right one, you know, that your default position in science should be go to, should be to go for the simplest answer. Then you look at that in business and you're like, well, that's really interesting that someone like Steve Jobs was obsessed with simplicity, talked again and again about simplicity and that the design of, of Apple products is very much influenced by the Zen aesthetic of simplifying everything, keeping everything simple and pure. And then I would start to go off on this mad tangent because I'd start to think, well, I spent so much of my time reading books about Buddhism and Kabbalah and Stoicism and the like. And so I'd be thinking, I was, I was talking about the, uh, this with a, a friend of mine who's a mutual fund manager last night. And I was talking about the fact that there's this line I quote in the book that's attributed to the Buddha that literally it just says, refrain from what is unwholesome, do good, purify the mind. And I'm like, 10 words, 10 yeah. words for this summary uh, of how to live, basically. And so, so I'm just sort of thinking, wow, that's really interesting that simplicity runs through everything, that it's a, it's a master approach to life. And then I'm thinking, well, why is that? Because we get confused. And you know, if you actually try to focus on the 613 commandments that are said to be in the Old Testament, you can't remember them. You don't know what they are. You, how can you possibly live by them? But once you start to, to subtract all of this complexity and have this sense of, you know, well, there are a few really simple rules that can guide you through life, like love thy neighbor as thyself and all the rest is commentary. That's incredibly helpful. So, so when you're writing the book and you go off on a mad tangent like that, you don't, you don't really know if anyone will come with you on that journey because you're actually being honest and sincere and you're saying, this is what I figured out about how to live in an incredibly confusing world where I'm lost and confused much of the time. You're very exposed because it's not just me saying to people, well, buy stocks cheap. It's me saying, look, in this world of real confusion, I think if I can try to be a little bit kinder and a little bit more loving, a little, you know, or, or I can come up with a few principles that are, are approximately true on average over time, it's going to really help me. So you're very exposed. And, th and then you have, you have things like trying to decide how honest you should be in the book about the fact that most people can't beat the market, that it's really, really difficult. And so here you are, you're, you're giving people a guide to get rich. And then you're like, should I lie to them and sell this idea that this is a really easy game to win when in fact it's a really hard game to win? And yeah. so... I sort of made a decision at a certain point. Well, no, I'm going to, I, I don't want to be leading lambs to the slaughter and telling them, you know, you can make 30% a year for the next 50 years. If you just follow my easy tips and you sign up for my $10,000 a year newsletter, it's like, no, it's, this is me saying, if you want to win this game, you need to ask yourself, do you have these qualities? Do you have this temperamental advantage that these guys I've interviewed have? Do you have the depth of, of fanaticism and intensity and talent and, and the lack of emotion? And then I'm sort of saying, well, I don't. And that's kind of embarrassing as well, right? Because here you are writing a book telling people what to do. And you're like, so should I pretend that I can do it? And so, so I'm having to say, well, there are certain aspects of my character that make me an okay investor. Like, like I'm, 
very independent minded, very independent spirited. I think for myself, I'm pretty contrarian. I'm happy to go against the crowd. I, I sort of am pretty good at resisting fads. But on the other hand, I'm not particularly rational. I, I don't want to spend my whole time sitting around reading annual yeah. reports and the like. So, so you're having to be kind of uh, very, so, so these decisions you make while you're writing a book about being honest about the difficulty of the game, being honest about your own flaws and foibles, your own mistakes that you've made in the past with investing, your interest in these other areas like spirituality and philosophy and literature and the like. In retrospect, they all seem really logical. And you're like, well, of course, it was always going to work. And everyone was always going to love me. And it was always going to be a success. And it's like, no, when you're writing it, I can't tell you how exposed you feel. Well, I mean, the book, Richer, Wiser, Happier, if the book was just called Richer, it'd be a lot less interesting in my mm. eyes. <laughs> the wiser and the happier piece is what brought it all together. And, and in my eyes is what's made it a modern day investing classic. Oh, thank you. One of the, the things that I have been really impressed with when I listen to your podcast, and maybe this is a multiple part question. So the first part is just when we've interviewed you more than a year ago, I think we were one of your earlier interviews on the so-called book tour. And uh, at that point, I never pictured you being a podcast host. Can you, can you walk us through how you ended up there? And if that's something you envisioned or if that's something that caught you by surprise? Yeah. I tell you what happened. I went on, I went on the, we study billionaires podcast as a guest. And I, originally it was called the investors podcast years and years ago. And I'd been on one of their first episodes, maybe the 30th episode or something maybe in 2015. And then I went back on when the book came out. And it's a very, very popular podcast. Like it's got, it's got a huge following. It's been going for about eight years. And it's very good. And Stig Burdison and Preston Pish, who hosted a, a really terrific and incredibly diligent and well-prepared. And so I had a long conversation with Stig on the show. And then a few days later, I think it was, Stig wrote me a really unusual message where, and Stig's, Stig's a really lovely and very interesting person. Um, very unusual person, really sort of soulful, professorial, very interesting guy. And Stig writes me a message and says, would you like to come to this town in Denmark where I live? And I'll pay for your flight. I'll pay for your hotel. There's a really nice hotel near my house. And we'll just hang out for a few days and chat because I really feel like it would be fun to chat more. You know, you just really enjoyed our conversation on the podcast. And it was the middle of COVID and I was like, I, I was just crazy with um, stuff related to the book, work related to the book and giving talks and the like. And I didn't really want to travel in the, you know, with all of the constraints on travel during COVID. But, but I, we started talking and I started saying to him, well, look, you know, I've been thinking about doing a podcast and I'd love to get your advice on it. And, you know, who knows, maybe, maybe we'll end up partnering in some way. And that led to all of these conversations. And Stig is just sort of a very remarkable person. So he would say things like, I'm going to buy you all of the equipment for your podcast, like the microphone and all of that stuff, um, you know, thousands of dollars of equipment. And he's like, that's just my gift to you, whether you end up partnering with us in any way or, or, or not, that's just my gift for you. And let me help you figure out the whole thing. And when you encounter people like that, who are kind of selfless, and just looking to help you. It's kind of so rare, I think, that you 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 just sort of think, well, this is someone I'd like to I'd like to work with. And it it kind of gets back to one of the lessons of the book where I, I talk in the habit, the habits chapter, the chapter called High Performance Habits. 
I talk about Guy Spears' idea of compounding goodwill. And it's one of those things where it's really interesting when you see these habits in practice and you're like, well, here's a guy, Stig, who's just sort of, for years, he's just been a really, really nice bloke. And you're like, well, so why wouldn't I want to partner with him? So yeah, what right. ended up happening is he kind of clued me up about how podcasts work. And he's like, well, what you really want to do is get on our feed because we already have an enormous number of subscribers. And so, so initially we were like, well, so I'll do half a dozen episodes. It'll be like a richer, wiser, happier podcast, but on, on the We Study Billionaires feed. And so a lot of people will get it. We'll just do it over six days. And then I started doing it. And I was like, this is kind of cool. It's like really kind of interesting. I mean, it's really hard and it's kind of stressful and stuff like that, but it's really kind of interesting. And, and what people like Tim Ferriss always say, I, I've never met Tim Ferriss, but I, you know, because I like to clone stuff and figure out like, uh, you know, who, who does these things really well. And so that's my, you know, when I write about this in the book, this is actually what I do. I reverse engineer what other people do to figure out, you know, how you should do it. So I started studying what Tim Ferriss had said about podcasts. And he had said, among other things, make sure the first few episodes are just with friends, basically, you know, so the stakes are really low. So if you mm -hmm. screw up, it's okay. So my very first episode was with Ray Dalio, who, um, who's like the most successful hedge fund manager of all time. And it's yeah, a good like, friend there, William. Oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'd never, I mean, we had spoken a couple of times, but I'd never met him in, in person. Uh, people who, you, uh, the, your audience can't hear the, uh, can't, can't see what's going on. But literally, I just, I realized I'm like sort of putting my hand on my head, like I'm holding my head as we're talking. So, I mean, can you imagine how stressed I was as I'm getting on that call? And I sort of, you know, and I'm trying to remember which buttons to press so that I record the thing. And, um, and I, I said something to him like, yeah, I, I don't really trust technology. So I just want to make sure I don't screw anything up. And he said, well, you know, you're an old hand at this. You know, uh, it's not the first time you've done it or something. And I'm like looking at the screen and I'm like, no, no. <laughs> you know, I didn't yes, say this is. out loud, but I'm like, yeah, no, this is the very first time because what you really want to do is start your podcasting career by interviewing the most successful hedge fund manager of all time. And so then... Then did I do, I think Tony Robbins was the next episode. So yeah. here's a guy with like yep. 6 million followers or something. Tony, I am actually kind of friends with. So that, that was, but that was pretty stressful as well because it was the day of the launch of his book. And so he keeps me waiting for like half an hour. And then, to, and I needed, you know, I needed to talk to him for an hour, uh, at least really to make it work. And then he gets, uh, and, and then one of his assistants, I'm close to his assistants. And one of them says, yeah, Tony's basically got half an hour. And so, so, this is, so this is like my second outing. I, I don't know if anyone other than, me, other than me would kind of have noticed this, but that was kind of a high wire act because I somehow managed to keep him on for an hour despite the fact that he had a live TV interview scheduled during our podcast. And so it was kind of like this, this high wire act of sort of charming, cajoling, postponing, and so, so yeah, that is, so it, it was not unstressful, my introduction to the podcasting world. And then, I, and then I followed that with like Howard Marks and Joel Greenberg, you know, two of the greatest investors of, of our era. So, so, so I did, I started off kind of um, with some pretty amazing people, which, which then of course gives you this tremendous fear of like, oh my God, what if my next guests are all crap? And so, so there's never this ability just to sort of sit back and be like, God, I'm amazing. It's always like, uh, you know, you write a book and you're like, what if the next book sucks? Or you start getting doing a podcast, you're like, this is fantastic. I've got Ray Dalio. And then you're like, 
what if I suck? What if the next episode sucks? So I, I don't know. I wish I could be more self-congratulatory, but I, I just go from sort of, you know, anxiety to anxiety, which I, I'm trying to change. But if, if you have any, any cheap therapeutic advice for me, that would be gratefully received. Sometimes you just got to lean into what you have. You know, if, that, if, if anxiety to anxiety are your 10 poles, roll with it, you know? Yeah. The good news for you is that you, while you might be new to podcasting, you've been interviewing people for decades, right? So it's That's not true. as if, you know, it's not as if you're a, a new kid on the block in that, that respect. Yeah. And that, that, that is something that comes naturally in some ways. So, so, so what I do, I, I mean, I, I don't know, I, f- I feel bad for your audience for me being so self, self-referential. So I'll, I'll try to generalize this in some way so that it's vaguely, vaguely helpful. So what I do is I'm just obsessive about preparation. So, you know, like I, I have um, Robert Schiller, the Nobel Prize winning economist coming on in a few weeks. And so this morning I'm like, uh, you know, I ordered three or four, I think three of his previous books and, you know, I'll spend days and days working on it and I'll end up with about 15 pages of questions, which I then whittle down to maybe seven or eight pages of questions before the thing. And so, I mean, the way, the way I deal with the stress of this stuff and the fear of failure and uh, all of that is, is to try to be maniacally well-prepared. So I really think about it before. And, and then the very strange thing, I don't know if you find this with your interviews, is there's a lot of anxiety before it. And then I, I found this with interviews throughout my life because I've been doing this for about 30 years, interviewing people. What happens is then as it begins, there's this kind of deep sense of peace that descends where I, I think it's because you're entering a, a, some sort of state of flow where you're so present that all of the noise gets shut out. And that's a very beautiful thing. It's just, it's just you and the person. And so even, even when I look back at that Dalio episode, I can see that I was pretty stressed. Stressed? Yeah, I, I, it, was, it was more like, uh, I, I was going to use the image, of it. it's like you're looking at yourself like a predator. It's not that, it's like there's a sort of intensity where it's like just a very deep presence, like where you're just, you're just going to catch any ball that comes at you. Yes. Uh, so was, I was hyper alert rather than relaxed and calm and present. And I, I suspect I've become a little bit more calm and present in the interviews, but I'm, st- I'm still sort of surprised at how after 30 years of doing this, I get stressed before it. You know, I, I, I interviewed Daniel Goleman, you know, who wrote the Emotional Intelligence book, um, which sold like 5 million copies. And, you know, when we talk about the idea of emotional intelligence, it's because of Dan, even though he didn't coin the term, he's the guy who kind of turned this into a, into a movement. And I'm kind of friends with Dan. I don't know him hugely well, but he's someone I've, I've met and had lunch with and coffee with, and I, I like and admire tremendously. I was so stressed before that interview. And that, that's kind of strange to discover that after all these years, there's still like this performance anxiety. And it, so, so it's not... It's not like you can sort of rest on your laurels and be like, thank God I've got this amazing podcast. And it's like, I'm so good at this. It's like, no, every single time it's like you get stressed before you. I mean, do, do you guys find this at all? Is it, is it stressful for you or are you, because you, you've done so many episodes now, right? I can certainly relate. 
I especially about the focus once you get into the interview and the fact that this was one of my main questions and you've done such a great job answering it, like how you ask such good questions, because that's one thing that jumps off, jumps out of my earbuds when I listen to your podcast is, is the questions. I can certainly relate. I think the preparation really helps. And then once you get into that flow state during the interview, it's a hopefully really enjoyable experience for everyone. When I, well, so one side tangent for Robert Schiller, if you're looking for questions, I'd love to hear about his thoughts on different changes to accounting standards and how that adjusts uh, Schiller Cape and Hmm. his thoughts on the elevated levels. He gets asked that question all the time, but I haven't heard a concise answer. I haven't heard him get asked that question in the last five years Um, where I wanted to, to take my next line of questioning with you is really let me jump back to my notes because i just lost my train of thought see you got me all flustered well, here, it's, it's it's tricky right because you're having i mean this is what i think people don't understand necessarily when they're when they're listening to these things is you have some sense of what you're going to ask in advance if you're very well prepared yeah, yeah but then because you don't have control over the answers it can take you in a totally different dimension in a in a different direction and so you're you're aware of what your questions are, but some suddenly there's an answer that touches on a question that you were going to ask later. And so mm-hmm. you're like, well, I can't just ignore it and stick blindly to the strategy that I had. So I've got to go with the flow. I've got to be listening to what they're saying at the moment. I've got to be thinking of my next question. And I've somehow got to remember to come back if it's really important. And so you're you're kind of operating on three or four different levels simultaneously. So it requires a kind of deep, a deep presence. And then at the same time, you're having to make the person feel very comfortable so that they'll, they'll open up. And then once in a while, you'll say something that, you know, maybe it's kind of really stupid and that can throw you. And so I was listening to my recording of my interview with um, Dan Goldman the other day. And he was very influenced by an extraordinary guy called Neem Karoli Baba, who was a, um, a famous teacher in India who taught him about 50-something years ago. And he had a big impact on people like um, uh, Steve Jobs. And he was kind of an extraordinary sort of Indian guru. And I realized that I was sort of saying something in passing halfway through the interview. And I say, you know, and people like Ram Das and Neem Ali Baba. It's like, I've literally called Neem Karoli Baba, Neem Ali Baba. And... And you're like, I'm such a moron. And you're so like, so should I re-record that bit and insert? And it's like, no, I'm too lazy to do that. I'm not going to do that. And so I'm just going to live with it. And then there was an episode with Monish Pabrai where there's a moment where I'm talking about his daughter, Monsoon, which is a wonderful name, uh, who's, um, and I was sort of talking about what an extraordinary person she is and that she'd done this particular thing that was just incredibly kind to me during the Birch Hathaway yep. meeting. Yep. And and I sort of, and I start saying something like, yeah, so she's like 26, and I'm like 53. So, you know, here she is helping someone who's like 37 years old, 27, 37, 20. And <laughs> so here I am in the middle of this thing, trying to keep the train of thought. And suddenly I'm doing mathematics. And yeah. not only am I doing mathematics, but I'm ballsing it up so badly <laughs> that, that I'm like, oh my God, everyone's going to see that I'm kind of a moron. And Monish has like 180 IQ and is like a math whiz. And he's just sort of standing there looking at this moron kind of flailing in the shallow end of the paddle pool. And so then again, 
afterwards. I'm like, do I edit it out? Do I replace it? I'm like, no, people can see what a moron I am and that I can't, you know, do simple mathematics. That's fine. So speaking of morons, right? My, my question came back to me. So (laughs) I'm, I'm so impressed. You know, we talked about compounding goodwill the last time we spoke and that's Mm. really stuck with me. I think it's stuck with a lot of our listeners, but I'm so impressed whether you talk about going to the Berkshire Hathaway angle meeting and just the group of people you sit with, or you talk about people you interview on the podcast. I mean, you seem blessed to have this incredible group of friends that are truly borderline famous, rich, intelligent, kind folks. Like how did you, is that simply compounding goodwill or have you, I'm sure there's some luck and fortune in there, but this group of friends that seem to be people you can call up. I'll, I'll tell you, We've tried to get some of the people that are on your podcast and our podcast. We haven't had success. You have this Rolodex of friends that is truly impressive. What what is that process like and how did you end up so fortunate? Yeah, that's a hard question to answer because it's A, it's hard to be truthful about it and B, it's hard to be self-aware about it. And so I think part of it is that in many cases, in many cases, there were people that I'd interviewed over the years. and they saw the way that you prepared for the interview. They saw how serious you were about it. They saw the way you wrote about them. They saw the way you fact-checked. And they thought, oh, this guy is serious. And so some of it is, you know, Munger talks about operating in a, in a seamless web of deserved trust. So if you don't screw people over the years, I think there's a certain benefit to that. It's a, it's, a complex, it's a complex question, and I want to unpack it a bit in a way that's kind of helpful. And I'll I give you an analogy. So when I, when I worked on the Great Minds of Investing book, which was a collaboration with this guy, Michael O'Brien, um, where he, he's an extraordinary photographer. So if people look, say, at Roger Lowenstein's biography of Buffett, which is a very good book, uh, it has a picture on the cover of Buffett sort of standing on a roof with a gray sky behind him. And that's taken by... Michael O'Brien, and it's in the Smithsonian's permanent collection. I mean, it's, it's great. And Michael's an amazing photographer and an incredible human being. And so I decided to write an introduction to that book on Michael's process of taking pictures because, you know, he was taking these portraits of Buffett and Munger and people like that, where he'd be right up close, looking directly in their eyes. None of them were allowed to, to smile. And when I started interviewing Michael about his process, he said he would take maybe 200 or 300 photos of someone like a Buffett or a Munger in a fairly short space of time, you know, say it was half an hour, whatever he had, 45 minutes, 20 minutes, whatever he had. And he said he wouldn't talk. And if he wanted them to move their chin or something or look straight, he would just sort of motion with his hand. And so he said to me that his intensity of engagement meant that they took it seriously. And I thought that was a really, it's really interesting when you see someone in another field tapping into the same sort of thing that you've tapped into. So if you're, if you're Dalio, for example, and you come onto the podcast and it's, and he's just written a five or 600 page book. And I've actually read the book cover to cover. And not only that, but then I've gone back and looked at principles, his previous book. And not only that, but I've gone and looked at other interviews that he's done and stuff like that, Uh, you know, they see the intensity of your engagement and they see that you're not just mailing it in. 
And I think that's kind of contagious. Like then people take you seriously. And then over the years, you also have these interviews with people, not on camera necessarily, uh, you know, not, not with a microphone, where it's really clear to them, not only from the depth of your questions and the intensity of your preparation, but it's also really clear to them that you're grappling with these problems yourself. So when I'm, when I'm thinking about, you know, if I, if I go talk to Bill Miller, say, about dealing with the pain of the financial crisis, when, you know, he, you know, famously screwed up and 100 people lost their jobs, as he told me, because of analytical mistakes that he made. Um, and I'm talking about the emotions of that. I'm talking to him about the pain that I went through when I got laid off as editor of the European Middle East and African editions of time in, in the middle of the financial crisis. And so I'm sort of saying, you know, I felt this intense sense of shame and like public exposure and how, you know, how do you deal with the shame? And then there was a moment, for example, where I sort of said to him, I feel like, I feel like that period of my life set me on a much better track. So even though I was like absolutely kind of crushed and I felt like my ego was sort of shattered, it sort of put me on this much better track. And now I'm writing books and I'm doing all this other stuff that's actually much more true to who I am. And it kind of changed me and it kind of broke my ego in really valuable ways. And I said, do you feel like in some perverse way, even though, you know, your assets under management went from 77 billion to 800 million and all these people lost their jobs and, you know, you put on 40, 50 pounds or whatever through the stress of it. Uh, do you feel like in some way it, it was a good experience? And he looks at me and he's like, yeah, absolutely. It's like totally cathartic. He's like, when you, when you are kind of master of the universe and you've been right, right, right for all those years as he had been, because he'd beaten the market for 15 years running. And so he was like this kind of giant. He said, you go on Bloomberg and on CNBC and everything and everyone just listens to everything you say and they assume you know what you're talking about. And he said, when you're as publicly and badly wrong as I was, nobody wants to hear from you again. And he said, then you have to really go back and look at your process and look at how you think and look at what you got wrong and learn from your mistakes. And he said, it was very cathartic. And so, so there's a very long-winded answer to your question, but I think it's that degree of candor as well. Where So it's not, it's not only, it's like you've treated them honorably, you've treated them honestly, you haven't twisted things and, and, and use things that they said out of context. You've treated, you've, you've written about it sensitively and empathetically and truthfully and fact, factually. But then also you've sort of exposed your own vulnerability and your own sense of fallibility. And so there's a sense that you're sort of your fellow travelers trying to figure out how to, how to live and how to operate and how to deal with um, our failures, our setbacks, our disappointments, you know, and so when, when in the final chapter, and I think it's in the epilogue of the book, I write about this aspect of Bill Miller's career. I say at one point, there are, there are two great lessons from Miller's, Miller's story, because Miller had this astonishing recovery after this kind of public fall from grace. And I said, um, so, so I was hugely impressed with his recovery and the strength, the strength and indomitability that he showed during this very difficult period of his life. And I said, I think I said the first, the first lesson is the simple Buddhist truth, which is everyone suffers. And the second one, I think I said, was the, the other great lesson is that there's, there's tremendous honor in the simple virtue of perseverance. And when I'm saying those two things, I mean it. I mean, it's like, 
I, I, I'm dealing with my own pain, my own difficulties, my own setbacks. And I'm looking at the fact that even someone like Bill, who's just unbelievably smart, gifted and at the absolute top of his game, I'm looking at the way he got kind of undone, learned from his mistakes, came back. And I'm trying to share this lesson in as simple and naked a way as possible. Like, like to sort of say to people, look, just because you're hugely rich and famous and successful, you know, his bill is a billionaire, right? Doesn't mean you don't suffer. And I wanted to show that people like that go through pain as well, because then when you're going through periods in your own life that are really difficult, you look at these other people and you're like, yeah, well, of course, it's as, as the Buddha say, it's part of the human condition. We all go through difficult periods. And so, so the simple, the simple ability to um, to persevere, or as, as one of the one of the fund managers I, I wrote about said, to survive the dips, that turns out to be massively important. And, and look at the last two years that we've gone through. You know, you've you had to survive the dips. And so building a relationship with these people comes in some way from trying to be authentic, trying to be truthful, trying, you know, trying really sincerely to look at the questions that that they're facing in their careers that are raised by their careers, you know, like, how, how do we as investors and as humans deal with the fact that the future is unknowable, but none of us knows what's going to happen. And and yet you have to make decisions. You have to decide, am I going to go back out in public, even though there's a risk of getting COVID? Am I, am I going to go back and work in an office? Am I going to plunge back into the market, even though it's just been clobbered? Am I, you know, where am I going to live? Am I going to have kids? Am I going to, you know, and, and so we're all kind of groping in the fog. And I, I think if, you, if you're really profoundly engaged with the questions that come up, from that kind of groping people sense it and they sense whether you're being truthful and whether you're trying to be authentic and i i think it makes for a different level of conversation a different level of engagement and, and i think all of us are aware that you know the world is so full of crappy content right literally i mean just think of the word content it's like so many people are just like let me fill the hour that i have or let me let me write the column that i have to write for the paper or let me you know, produce another book because I'm supposed to write one thriller a year. And it's like, no, the world doesn't need more crap, uh, just just extra crap. It, it needs <laughs> some some more authentic stuff where we're actually trying to do our best work and trying to think more deeply. And so I, I think when you I think when you tap into that, people are like, yeah, I, I, I want to do that, too. That's cool. I'd love to to pull on that a little bit because I uh, completely resonates the authenticity, the trust, the credibility that, that you build with folks. There's another aspect of it that I, you're a self-effacing individual, so I, I, I hope that this, uh, this question doesn't challenge too much, but I'd love mm -hmm. the, the answer. I think that there's another aspect that likely comes from all of the preparation and anxiety that you have before this that leads you to teach as you're mm -hmm. asking questions, that the folks that you're interviewing also likely learn something, think about themselves, even though they have these amazing careers, there's always something to learn. And my question would be, I'm, a, I'm making that assumption. You can debunk it if you want, but making that assumption with that assumption, I'd love to, to get your view on what do you think are the top lessons you may have taught to some of these top investors over time? Yeah, I mean, it, it would definitely be presumptuous for me to assume that I've taught anyone anything, anything very much. But, I, but, but there are moments where you 
push them, I think, to see things more clearly in their own life. And that's kind of beautiful where in the, so it's, it's not so much me as a, as a teacher, it's me pressing in a particular area. I, I give you an example of this that I, I found quite weirdly moving in some ways where if, if you listen to the episode of the podcast where I was talking to Monish Pavrai, there was a moment, so, so Monish got me really obsessed with Power Versus Force by David Hawkins. And Power Versus Force is a very interesting book because it, it kind of changed Monish's life because he got this idea that he just would become relentlessly truthful, would just always tell the truth. And Hawkins' view is that there are certain types of behavior that calibrate very high. And so if you just decide to tell the truth, people sense it. And if there's some sort of internal misalignment, they sense that too. And so I remember once, for example, interviewing some multi-billionaire who I really didn't like. And I told Monish about it afterwards. Uh, Monish said, yeah, you could smell that he was lying. You could smell that there was a misalignment there. And there was, and the guy's career kind of fell apart afterwards. And I just, there was something about him. It was just like, he's not truthful. And, uh, you know, he's not being straight with me. And it's like, why am I wasting my time? And so Monish taps into this great superpower of telling the truth. And he's taken it to a really extreme degree. And that's had a profound impact on me, right? It's a very interesting idea. You should be radically truthful. And it's something that Dalio is also obsessed with being radically truthful. But, but Monish set me off on this long journey of reading Hawkins obsessively. And so I read all of these other books and I read Power Versus Force again. And I'm like, it's really weird because they're all of these virtues that Hawkins talks about, like being kinder, more compassionate, more loving, more sharing. And so I sort of said to Monish in the interview, I kind of feel like you misunderstood Hawkins, like you missed this whole thing. Like you take this whole aspect of truthfulness, which is clearly really important. And you kind of became, became totally obsessed with one virtue and you kind of ignored the others. And he sort of, I, I mean, again, I'm probably kind of mis, misrepresenting what happened, but my memory of it is he sort of does a double take and he starts to really think about it. He's like, he said something along the lines of, well, for me, it was easier to be truthful than kind that's an incredibly candid thing for somebody to say, for somebody to be so self-aware and so honest and so fearless about exposing their, uh, their personality and their struggles and stuff. That, so, so when I hear something like that, I'm like, that's a very beautiful thing for me as an interviewer. I'm like, that's, that's, that's somebody being truthful. And it kind of brings me up in chills when I hear something like that. Because uh, you're touching a different sort of a different layer of the register to mix many different metaphors. And that's sort of what you're looking for as an interviewer. And there was one point in that interview where Monish sort of said to me, well, this may be one of the most important takeaways I've had in the last month or perhaps this year. And so there's a part of my ego that's looking at it and it's like, oh, great, I've taught Monish, you know, this like incredibly smart brilliant guy and it's very easy to sort of fall into that and, and I, I don't want to sound like I'm you know some sage who's teaching somebody something it's like I'm probing I and what I'm trying to do is wrestle with this problem like how do you read Hawkins because Hawkins is kind of a really weird mystic and really smart really thoughtful and and then I said to 
I, you know, Monish and I were um, messaging each other in recent weeks, and I was like, you know, maybe you should read um, um, The Eye of the Eye, which um, which has a subtitle, something like From Which Nothing is Hidden, which is another terrific book of his. And, and he was like, yeah, I just, I, you know, didn't do anything for me. And it's one of the more mystical books of, of Hawkins. And Monish, who's super, super rational, doesn't have much time for the more mystical stuff that Hawkins wrote. Whereas for me, it's very profound. It's very interesting. I'm more kind of mystically inclined and less rational than Monish. So, so in a way, th this stuff is actually like a serious kind of intellectual uh, intellectual is kind of the, the wrong word, but a sort of intellectual debate where it's like, I'm actually trying to figure out what can I learn from Hawkins? And I'm engaged in discussing it with Monish because I'm like, how do I improve my life? And there is a part of me that sort of presumptuously wants to improve Monish's life as well. And, and so there, I mean, there was a point a few years ago where Monish was going through a difficult period and I, I kind of wrote to him privately sort of saying, you know, something kind of encouraging about, you know, how remarkable I thought he was. And, you know, you know, that's not something you would traditionally do as a journalist. You're supposed to be sort of detached and objective. And, and one of the pleasures of being a writer of books and being able to put yourself in it is that you kind of can, I, I think anyway, if you disclose this stuff, you can kind of drop that facade. And, and so, you know, one of the things that he wrote back to me was about, his reading of Marcus Aurelius, the Stoic philosopher, and talking about how Marcus Aurelius, Marcus Aurelius had kind of helped him deal with these difficult periods. And that ended up in the book. And so it came out of that exchange where I was trying to support Monish in a difficult period. And um, he was writing back to me about how to deal with it. So there really is a sense in which there's skin in the game here. I, I'm actually trying to figure out how to live. And, mm -hmm. and when I'm having these conversations with people like Monish, I'm trying to figure out what they've figured out. And then I'm very seriously trying to figure out how to share helpful ideas with the audience. So there's some degree of helping, helping them, some degree of helping me, and some degree of helping the audience. And, and, and I think the more the audience feels like you're doing it for them, the, the better. And, and, and when I screw up, it's, it's sometimes because I'm worried about how people will think about me, for example. So I, I, I felt like in, in one of the interviews I did recently, I, I, I won't flag it for people because I'm embarrassed to have them uh, focus on it. But in one of them, I felt like I got off to a bad start the first 10, 15 minutes. And I think the reason I got off to a bad start is A, because I was very stressed, but B, because I really admired the person I was interviewing. And I didn't, and so I think I was probably too focused on wanting to impress them and not focused enough on the audience. And so, so, it, so none of this stuff is a sort of static thing where it's like you've won the battle and you've figured out, here's how I do an interview and here's how I prepare. And here, you know, it's like, you know, you mess up, then you recover. And then, and then I listened to that interview again the other day and I'm like, I can see the moment where about 15 minutes into it, I kind of got control of myself. And then the last kind of 20 minutes, kind of beautiful, I thought. And so it's, it's difficult. You're kind of, you know, it's like you're trying to correct the course of the plane in midair when you're caught up in turbulence and you kind yeah. of, you know, you were scratching your nose and you suddenly fell 20,000 feet. I have another long question for you, but first a comment. So I read Letting Go by Hawkins after our last, after you talked about it, uh, the last time you were on with us. And I'll tell you, I really enjoyed it, but there are definitely parts that 
or over my head. If you <laughs> want to do content as a masterclass on how to read Hawkins or get him on the podcast, I will consume that in a, in a heartbeat because I found it so interesting, but not all of it clicked with me. Yeah. So that's just a comment. But there's one, I mean, there's one really, really important idea there in that book, which which bears repeating, which I'm I'm sure we talked about last time, which is this simple mechanism that he explains in chapter two, where he's just saying, when these intense emotions come up, whether it's, you know, fear, anxiety, despair, self-flagellation, whatever it is, anger, whatever your particular flavor or my particular flavor of, of um, intense or negative emotions or negative thought patterns are, you don't try to judge it, you don't try to suppress it, you don't try to repress it, you don't project onto somebody else because you're so mad at yourself that you look at, you know, like when you get into an argument with your wife or your kid or something and you're, and you're like, well, you did this. And, you know, and often you realize afterwards it's because I couldn't, you know, I couldn't face my own responsibility for what I'd done. So, so and, and, and he says, you don't even try to change it. You just sit with it. And so the ability to abide with painful stuff turns out to be incredibly powerful. And so what Hawkins is saying that I think is a, a really profound and interesting and helpful thing is that what keeps the energy behind these negative thought patterns or emotions going is resistance to them. And so when you don't resist, what he's saying is that the energy behind it dissipates, it, it becomes less intense. And, and that, that idea alone is worth the price of entry for that book. Because yes. if you really apply that idea in your life, then, you know, when you feel really anxious or something, like, I, I mean, I remember doing this before, before, I think it was before my interview with Dan Goldman, where I remember I was driving to my office where I have my equipment, my recording equipment and stuff. And I'm like, God, I can feel how anxious I am. And, and so you're just sort of, you're becoming kind of self-aware and you're like, oh, well, so where's the pressure in my body? Where's the uh, you know, what's how this sort of buzzing energy of my body or my head or whatever, it, you know, wherever it manifests for you, or you look at it and you're like, my, my breathing's not quite right. And I could, I, I, I don't know why, maybe it's because we've been talking about sort of, you know, some stressful subjects in, in this interview at certain points, but, there, but I'm aware that there are certain points in our conversation where my breathing was kind of constrained. And so you become much more self-aware. And then instead of trying to change it you sit with it and you're like okay that's all right yeah so my breathing's a little constrained and a little stressed and and then it just sort of goes it just kind of subsides a little bit and and there's a there's an extra i've been listening to an interview on the 10 cent happier podcast with an extraordinary tibetan um buddhist uh teacher um called mingyur rinpoche and he had panic attacks when he was a kid and his father is an extraordinary teacher. His late father was an extraordinary teacher and his brother is an extraordinary teacher. And that was sort of what he learned from his father, who was this guy called Tulku, Tulku Urgyen Rinpoche. Rinpoche means precious one. That it was to kind of sit with the panic and not, not try to judge it, not try to change it. And so that ability to abide with things that are difficult until they kind of subside is so it's not really what we were taught growing up, but I think it's an incredibly powerful and helpful idea. And I, I'm only sort of scratching the surface with it. I, I mean, I've, I've been playing with this certainly in the years since we spoke last, and there's nothing about it that makes me think it's not incredibly powerful. 
and I talk about this in my interview with Dan Goldman that's coming out this this Saturday because he he studies with Mingyur Rinpoche's brother, um, Sognyur Rinpoche, who has a practice called handshake practice that involves this. And so there's a point in my interview with Dan where I talk about a very difficult thing that had happened to him. And I said, how did you deal with it emotionally? Like, are you good at dealing with these things emotionally? And he described using this handshake practice to deal with, you know, this, uh, this thing where the New Yorker had written a really unfair four page piece about uh, emotional yeah. intelligence. So it's a very powerful idea. So, so you don't need to actually understand the whole book or think that you've mastered the whole book. It, I, I personally think it's literally like that one paragraph itself. Mm -hmm. You know, it's, it's kind of like if you're studying meditation and somebody says, yeah, just breathe in and out and focus on the breath and look at how, you know, how your chest is rising or your belly is rising and falling or how the breath is going in the nostrils and out of the nostrils. And you're like, really? That's it? That's all I have to do? And it's like, yeah, but that's kind of like a lifetime practice that's going to rewire your brain and your body. And, and so these very simple things pack enormous weight and and, and so, so it kind of goes back to this beautiful line from Munger where he says um, I observe what works and doesn't work and why and then and then he talks about take a simple idea and take it seriously so when you find something like that like that mechanism from letting go of like you don't have to change the emotion you don't have to repress it you don't have to judge it just be with it and and the intensity will go that's that's a very simple idea that's potentially actually life-changing. Does that make it, any sense? Does that resonate? It does. At all? No, it really does. And it's perfect. You mentioned Munger there because I've had this question for almost a year and a half here, William, mm. that uh, I'm so curious for your take on. So I think in the book, you did a master, masterful job of, I mean, you can't talk about investing legends without uh, mentions of Buffett, but there's not a formal paragraph dedicated to Buffett. And I'm curious, this is a two-part question. The first part is, I'm curious how you thought about that and if you wrestled with that and if, if that was a hard decision or an easy decision, if, if there's so much content on Buffett that you decided you wanted to head a different direction or just the Buffett question is the one that's interesting to me. I think you handled it amazingly well, but I'm curious for your thought. And then the second one is a thought experiment relating to Buffett that we've talked about on the show before. And I don't know why it's so incredibly interesting to me, but the investing community has been so blessed that Buffett has, has lived such a long life. So for the last 40 or 50 years, he's been teaching lessons and he has the effectively investing retreats in Omaha every year at the Brookshire anger meetings and stuff. Have you ever gone through the thought experiment of what if unfortunately Buffett had a heart attack in his mid fifties, how the investing huh. community might think about him because so much of that compounding that's happened in the last 40 years I think there's other people that had similar track records that just haven't had the longevity that Buffett has had. And I, I don't know why, like I said, but I think about that a lot. I'm curious for your take on it. Yeah, I, that's, a, that's a curious question. I, I haven't really thought about that. I mean, I know Morgan Housel has talked a lot about how much of the compounding of, of Warren's wealth has been in the, in the very latter part, you know, because of the way compounding works in the latter part of his life. I don't know. I mean, I had a very interesting conversation with Lee Lu, who's one of the, the great investors who, who never really talks and who manages a part of Charlie's fortune. He's a very extraordinary guy. And he was talking, he was talking about how in many ways, how to express this properly, there, there's, 
you know, there's this force of entropy in the world, right? Where things fall apart, the center cannot hold, as the poet Yeats said, and, you know, the second law of thermodynamics, that the law of entropy, that so things tend toward, you know, chaos, disintegration. Um, this, this gets back to my knowledge of badgers. My knowledge of, of physics is about as good as my knowledge of badgers. And then what Li Lu was saying is that the reason Warren and Charlie are so extraordinary is that they kind of counter this, this force of entropy through this other force of long-term compounding, that there's something, they're this extraordinary embodiment of what long-term compounding actually does. And I, I think, I think, well, sorry, there's my dog barking in the background. I think one of the things that's really, um, that's really difficult for investors to get their heads around is that really the power in investing often is not doing kind of really flamboyant pyrotechnical stuff where you hit the ball out of the park and you, you know, you make 30% a month in Bitcoin before it collapses or, you know, you so you have to take these wild risks. The thing that's really amazing is when you compound a decent clip over many, many, many years without disaster, that's, that's actually a really profoundly important lesson that they embody. The ability to compound over decades without catastrophe is so powerful that it, it means you actually don't need all of the pyrotechnics. You don't need to take the wild risk. And so when I think of the mistakes that I've made as an investor, the, the biggest ones were always when I was in a hurry. It was always when I thought, here I am with this opportunity to get in with the fast set, with the smart money, because I know all of these people. So I can invest in this private company at a really low valuation, a much cheaper valuation than Goldman Sachs is investing. Look how important I am and, and what good access I have. And then you'd end up losing you know, 90% of your money, 95%, 80% of your money. And it's so hard to get back that money when you have a massive loss. And so in some ways, the things that have done me, uh, done me the most good financially over you know, 30 years, uh, I guess it's 30 years now of investing, were the things where I just kind of chugged along pretty decently getting, you know, 10% a year, that sort of thing, without catastrophe. And it's so unexciting. And the promise of the excitement of the big score is so great, that most of us actually miss the real story, which, which is, which is that, that combination of, well, it, what it's really about is sustainable compounding over time, and the avoidance of catastrophe. And if you look at if you look at all of the investors I write about in my book, they all manage to avoid catastrophe. Except with the, that's not entirely true, actually, because Charlie had a catastrophe in, you know, 73, 74, that sort of period uh, that was very painful. I mean, you talked about Bill Miller. That's Bill Miller and maybe and a was, catastrophe. Yeah. And Charlie was going to say, like Charlie said at one point, look, if um, there are three times over the last 50 years where Berkshire has lost half its value. And so, so, you know, you look at the triumph of Amazon, Amazon has lost half its value several times. And so, so there, there are disasters along the way, but so long as there's not a permanent loss of capital, you're kind of okay. So you have to be able to stay in the game. So you have to set yourself up to be resilient enough. So you have enough cash set aside, you don't have too much um, debt. So you'll be okay. Uh, 
even if there's a disaster along the way. And so, so what, what Jeff Gundlach, who's known as the, the King of Bond said, sorry, my dog is still barking like crazy. Um, what Jeff Gundlach said is, you wanna make sure that your errors are non-fatal. So I think this is, when, when you ask this question about the, the thought experiment about Buffett, it, it actually raises some really profound questions about, about the importance of compounding over very long periods without disaster. And that requires you not to overreach. And it requires you not to chase after the biggest fads of the day. Um, and that's very, very difficult, as we've seen over the last year or two. I mean, there was, there was a, um, when, when you see everyone getting rich on Solana and Ethereum and Bitcoin and, and Peloton and Netflix and Spotify and stuff, even if you're a pretty conservative investor, you start to think, am I kind of a schmuck? Like these people are making money so easily and maybe they're right. Maybe this is a new paradigm. Maybe it's a new era and maybe I should jump on the bandwagon. And, and I, th I think again, to quote something from, um, from Jeff Gundlach, the, uh, you know, this, this, this bond king who manages something like $150 billion last time I checked. What he said to me is, you have to ask yourself, what's the consequence if I'm wrong? So, so let's say you load up on Bitcoin and Solana and Ethereum and you make it 70% of your net worth and you're wrong. That might actually be really catastrophic. That might actually mean that you don't get to retire and you don't get to send your kids to the college of their choice. If you think this is really interesting technologically, there's something really interesting going on with blockchain and all of this stuff and and new currencies and it makes sense because you know central banks are really unreliable and so so you actually engage with it intellectually and you start to think yeah there's something real here and then you say so let me put five percent of my net worth in it or let me put two percent in it that then if you're wrong it's not fatal and and so when i interviewed bill miller on my podcast bill has at least when i interviewed him he had he had more than 80% of his net worth in Bitcoin and Amazon. And he'd owned both for so long that his, his average cost was effectively zero. I mean, he, he made, you know, he told me at one point that he's the biggest individual shareholder of Amazon who's not named Bezos. So, I mean, so he can afford to take serious risk because he's still going to be a billionaire or, you know, worth a few hundred million or whatever. I mean, this is the guy who gave $75 million to his old philosophy department at Johns Hopkins as a gift. I mean, you know, so, and he has an incredible temperament and he's in his seventies, you know, he's not yeah. fearful at all. He can deal with the stress or stuff, but for you or me to take that kind of risk would be kind of suicidal. And, and so you just have to ask from your, in your situation, what would the consequence be if you're wrong? Be humble about the fact that the future is unknowable and the fact that we're fallible and that we get carried away. And so when I said to Bill, what should your default position be if you're a regular person, not a zealot, and you want to invest in things like Bitcoin? What, you know, how much of your portfolio should you put in it? He's like, 2%. Yep. And, and that's a really, really good guide. So if you just blew up and you just lost 70% of your money in Bitcoin, but it only had 2% of your net worth, you, you just sort of sigh and you're like, yeah, okay, yeah, so I'm a fool yet again. And maybe it'll recover and maybe you're fine, but it's non-fatal. So, so that, 
that's what we really, I think, can clone from Buffett and Munger is sustainable compounding over many years without catastrophe. Definitely. Yeah, I'm in the 2% camp. And then uh, I'll ask again. So your thoughts on how you handled Buffett with a book and how much thought went into that? Well, a lot of thought, you know, and I'm slightly sheepish about this because I wrote to Buffett years and years ago and asked him for an interview for the book. You know, in, in, in Buffett's case, I think you, if I remember rightly, uh, you know, you go through a particular, you know, his long-term um, assistant who's sort of has the keys to the kingdom. And the way, the way that she replied made me think that she didn't give him the message. And oh. I, I think she was protecting him from the kind of mounting complexity in his life where too many, too many people are barraging him with requests. And he had sent me a, a very nice letter about 20 years ago explaining why he was turning down a request of mine for a, a, a magazine article that I was writing. And so, so I sort of am I'm looking at this as I'm planning the book and I'm thinking, oh my God, so I've got all of these famous investors like the Jack Bogles and the Peter Lynch's and the Sir John Templeton's that I've interviewed over the years. So, so I have a lot of the most famous investors of all time. But then I'm like, the single most famous investor of our generation is not going to talk to me. What the hell am I going to do? And I sort of knew that going in. I knew that there was a very big chance of that. So I had to figure out to some degree, how do you hide the ball? How do you learn the lessons without kind of, you know, what, what do you share that's really valuable? Um, and one part of the sleight of hand, in a sense, is that the very first chapter is called The Man Who Cloned Warren Buffett. And what it's about is Monish, this brilliant guy who grows up in a $20 a month apartment in the suburbs of Mumbai, stumbling upon a book in which he reads about Buffett and figuring out, oh, here's the guy who won the game. How do I reverse engineer him and clone what he's done to turn a million dollars into a billion dollars? And so what I sort of figured is, well, that's kind of an incredibly cool and fresh story because what I can tell the reader is, here's how you actually, here's how you actually do what Buffett did, how you pull it off. And what was extraordinary about Monish is that he figured out this whole philosophy of cloning where you reverse engineer what people who are smarter, wiser, more successful have already done, have already figured out, and then you apply it in different areas of life. And so what was kind of amazing about Monish was that he'd done it so successfully that he'd not only built this incredibly successful record as an investor, but he built an unbelievably successful record as a philanthropist who was changing tens of thousands of people's lives. So I was like, if I can, if I start the book with that, then also I'm showing people it's not really just about making money anyway, because, you know, to have a truly successful life, it's not just about amassing the most money. And here's this guy, Monish, who starts with nothing and he decides that he's going to become a billionaire and he's going to end his life with nothing. He's going to give it all away, but he's going to have won the game. And so he's the ultimate game player. And that's an extraordinary story because, because that's something we can all relate to. And we can, we can all, you know, we, we, you know you're, you're learning with Monish how to play the game the way Warren figured it out. And what's kind of beautiful is that he ended up becoming friends 
with Warren over the years, but really the one he's become incredibly close to is Charlie Munger. And Charlie has kind of adopted Monish. And so like last week, you know, like Monish and I sort of message each other fairly often. Uh, you know, Monish is like, yeah, I'm just about to get into Charlie's catamaran and stuff like that. And so there's something really beautiful about the idea that this very brilliant Indian guy from the suburbs of, of what was then Bombay, through figuring out how to play this game, has lifted himself out of obscurity and transformed thousands of lives. And, and so that, that kind of became, so in a way, maybe, maybe there was the initial sense of vulnerability of, oh my God, what if I don't have this story? And then, and then there was going about it through Monish. And then I had this incredible moment. I still remember, you know, you write to so many people asking them for interviews and sometimes, you know, they don't reply. And sometimes you write to them multiple times and pretend that you didn't write to them before. And sometimes it's cajoling and sometimes you show up somewhere for an interview they promised you and then they don't give it to you. You know, I mean, it's a, it's a bruising process. It's a, it requires an enormous amount of time. And so I wrote to Charlie Munger at one point and I said, I'm coming to California for the Daily Journal meeting because he was chairman of this uh, tiny publishing company, the Daily Journal. And, um, and I wasn't really going, but I was like, I was sort of thinking of it. And I was like, I'm coming for the Daily Journal meeting. Here's who I am. Here's what I've done. Here are the people I've interviewed for this book. It would be really wonderful if I could come interview you. And I get back a note from his assistant saying, 10 minutes, you can have 10 minutes with Mr. Munger. And so I spent weeks preparing for a 10 minute interview. And then I ended up, spending much more time asking him questions at the end of the meeting because because there's like this Q&A session and so that becomes kind of a big chapter so again it's a way of getting at the story of what Warren and Charlie figured out because it's the greatest partnership in the history of investing so again it was a way of getting around the fact that I didn't have Warren and what Monish had said to me is Charlie is sort of a different realm of intelligence from Warren. Like Warren's a genius, but Charlie is a whole other level of genius. And so that's kind of interesting as well, because we all kind of know what Warren thinks anyway. We've heard everything from him. But Charlie is kind of this um, uh, slightly misanthropic guy who is kind of grumpy and doesn't talk to people very often and is like curt, uh, you know, sometimes monosyllabic. And so... In a way, it was, a, it was almost a bigger get uh, to get him. And there was a moment I remember where I was standing next to my kitchen here in Westchester in the suburbs of New York. And I remember just being like, yes, yes, oh my God. You know, I mean, there's such, such a sense of joy at getting him. And I, I think of everyone that I got to interview for this book, that was probably the biggest sense of excitement um, that, I, that, that I got that. And so, so I spent an enormous amount of time preparing. And then, and then I arrived an hour before the Daily Journal meeting because I knew he was in a meeting room uh, in the lobby of the Daily Journal meeting. And so I'm literally arriving an hour early in case he comes out. And then, and then I got 10 minutes with him. And then after the meeting, I, I got more time in a group. And then what was crazy is uh, probably about... I don't know, it's probably like six, nine months ago, something like that, maybe nine months, something like that. I get a message from some guy on my website saying, uh, Charlie would like to talk with you. And, and it's like, you know, you sort of think you're being pranked. And it was like, what was really funny is 
you know, it's this group of really successful investors who would have breakfast with Charlie. And it because of COVID, it, it had shifted to Zoom. And they were like, yeah, we've all, Charlie loves your book. We've all, we're all reading your book and we're going to discuss it at our next meeting. And would you like to be our guest? And so I ended up having like a two hour conversation about my book. It's like this joke. It's like, really? Yeah, I'm going to teach Charlie how to invest. And so, yeah, so the whole thing has been kind of head spinning. So, so, so initially you go through, I mean, you can, you can see why it's such a tumultuous and emotional thing writing a book because you go through the fear and disappointment of, oh my God, am I going to be able to pull this off without Warren in the book? And then you're like, oh my God, I've got Charlie. And then you're like, oh my God, I've only got him for 10 minutes. And then you're like, and then you pull it off. And then, and then you're like, oh my God, Charlie loves the book. I mean, he, he said to me at one point, he was like, this is, this is one of the best books ever written about investing. And you're sort of Agreed. like, wait a second. So you have this 98-year-old, and sorry, it sounds like super self-congratulatory to say this, but it's like, there was a moment where, you know, all, all of the worry that you've had about writing the book and all of the worry about like, what if, I mean, I saw someone, someone in, in India, I was looking at the reviews and someone had written something about what crap the book was. And I was like, you know, oh, yeah, like, even, you know, like I've had thousands of good reviews and it's like, you still focus on the one bad one. And you're like, that bastard, I can't believe he said, you know, it's crap and there's nothing, there's nothing to learn from this. And, um, and but I think the moment when, when Charlie said that, I was sort of like, I'm done. I'm like, uh, I'm like, you know, uh, here's someone who's kind of grumpy and brilliant and 98 years old and has read everything. And if he thinks it's good, all right, I can kind of be like, I maybe I kind of nailed it. And so, so in some weird way, and I, I hope that doesn't come across as sort of overly self-congratulatory, but in some weird way, there was a tremendous peace of mind that came after that. And, and I think it probably dissipated very quickly and I went back to checking, checking to see what this unknown guy had said about why my book sucked. Um, but it's, um, and, and there is, a, there was a point where someone, someone wrote a negative, there, there are really surprisingly few negative reviews on Amazon, but there was one about a year ago that I was like, who is this guy? And I go kind of searching around Amazon to figure out who it is. And I'm like, he's a momentum investor. Who's written a, a book about momentum investing? There we go. He's yeah, biased. Th th there's nothing wrong with momentum investing. Yes, but there's like, so of much wrong. He with hates my book. It's like <laughs> like I'm writing about all of these great conservative value investors, and I'm like looking at his book, and I'm like, should I write a crap review of his book? And then I'm like, <laughs> nah, that's okay. And so you just see, you know, it's again, it's kind of like we were saying before about you know this whole issue of David Hawkins and letting go and sitting with emotions that are really difficult. So it's like. You, you know, you you deal with the fact that suddenly you're like, oh my God, I'm unlovable and I'm stupid and I'm publicly embarrassed and people are critical and not everyone thinks my work is good. And you're like, yeah, welcome to the human condition. And, and you know, you sit with it a bit and you, you try to laugh at it a bit and you're like, yeah, all right. Mm -hmm. And then what do you do? You keep plugging away and try to try to do your best. William, this has been a tremendous amount of fun. We want to be respectful of your time. Uh, but uh, I just thank you so much. The follow-up interview was just as much fun as the the first one. Um, Dougals, do you have a, a last question or anything? Or um, I did. I, the thing that's been going through my mind is uh, I don't want to be presumptuous either. But let's say next year, the year after we end up talking again, I'd love to understand what what goals you have or what do you want to be true a year oh. from now or two years from now from an impact perspective or an accomplishment perspective. 
Yeah. First of all, thank you both so much for having me on. And I'll be happy to come on again in a year's time. We'll, you know, this can be like the, the equivalent of the seven up documentary series where you. I mean, you listen, we will take you up on it. So oh, I no, hope no. you're being honest here because no, we love I'm having happy. you on the show. Thank you. And I'm, I'm always happy to, to, to talk to you guys. You ask very, very thoughtful questions. In some ways, I'm very intentionally su suspending decisions about where I want to go. Like there's a, there are several, there are several book projects that I've thought about where I'm like, yeah, that's interesting. That could be good. And then, but I sort of, I sort of feel like I'm not quite ready and, and I'm, and I'm really enjoying the podcast. The podcast is very interesting. It's very challenging and it, and it builds an audience, a, a kind of tribe in a very interesting way around these ideas. And because Stig Broderson and Preston Pish had built this incredible audience, the crazy thing is that these episodes get heard by a ridiculous number of people. So like I, I did an episode with Guy Spear a couple of weeks ago, came out about 12 days ago. It's been downloaded like, I think uh, 150,000 times so far. Uh, uh, that's, and then lots of views on YouTube and stuff. And so that's kind of an amazing thing where you're like, wait a second, I can explore these really interesting subjects, interesting to me. And a lot of people, can can kind of benefit from that uh i hope anyway or you know i mean you you know talking to guy about things like what happened to his family in the 1930s when they lost all of their fortune when they were living in in germany as jews in the 1930s and how that led to this sense of uncertainty about the future and how that leads guy to have this approach to investing where he's looking for businesses that occupy what he calls the economic high ground and and so that's a really interesting conversation for me, where it's kind of linked to the trauma of his family, it's linked to his own story, it's linked to his personality. And so to get to have those discussions in a really in-depth way, like that was probably a three-hour conversation, that's a very beautiful thing for me. And so, so I'm sort of thinking that's a, that's a rich vein to continue to explore, and let's see where that takes me. So I, I'm pretty sure there'll be another book at some point I could see writing fiction at some point, although I've sort of failed at that in the past. I could see the podcast going on for a long time or not. Like, I, I don't really know. I mean, I don't, I, most of my predictions about the future, not, not only about the future of the world, but the future of my own life have turned out to be wrong. So when I thought, you know, there was a point where I was living in London, I really loved it when I was about 18, 19. It's, it's where I grew up. And I was like, I could just stay here forever. And about six months later, I was living in New York. And then at a certain point, I was like, I could just stay here forever. This is fantastic. And about six months later, I'm living in Hong Kong. And then like five years later, my wife says, do you think we should get a chip in our dog's ear so that we can move to London if we ever go to London? Because, you know, we'd need it to, to go to London. And I was like, no, I'm never moving back to England. I don't want to live in England. And then six months later, we're living in England. And so, you know, now we're living in New York again. And so I've been sort of, so I've demonstrated my inability to predict my own future so impressively on so many occasions in such profound ways that in, in a sense, I try to think sometimes about what's a target rich area. I don't, I don't know specifically what I'll do, but this is target rich. Like if I, if I keep interviewing great investors and really interesting thinkers and really interesting authors on my podcast, 
something cool comes out of it because it, you know, it's like enabling you to build a tribe around some ideas that are really worth exploring. And will that lead to more books? Will it lead to more podcasting? I, 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 I don't know. But I think, I think this general idea of studying, studying investors and trying to figure out what they've figured out and then, sh and then synthesizing those ideas and sharing them with an audience. I think that's, that, that was something where I kind of had a hunch that it was a target rich area and the book and the podcast have kind of proven that that's true. And I'm kind of surprised that I don't get bored with it. I sometimes get bored listening to myself. So I apologize for, for, for that. I'm like, really? How, how can you talk so much? Uh, so I apologize to your listeners for that. But, it, but I think it, this stuff is rich. It's a rich area to explore. So, so I, I'm not done with it yet. So I'll, I'll be back in a year. Uh, that's great to hear. So if to, to put a bow on this, the podcast is on the Investors Podcast Network. Um, it's called Richard Weiser Happier. Great, absolutely great guest. A continuation of the book. Though, if the book is good enough for Charlie Munger, it should be good enough for you guys, <laughs> for our listeners. So if you haven't read it yet, please pick it up. But not uh, for we, the guy in India who hated yeah, it and thinks I'm a schmuck. Or the momentum investor that gave you a bad review. We don't even, we're going to go <laughs> confiscate his copy. He's not allowed to even have <laughs> yeah. it. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> thank you someone, so much. So, someone, someone did say something like, um, yeah, this is way too long. It could, it could have been done in a hundred pages. And I was, I was sitting outside with my wife and I was like, no, I think it could have been like two pages, maybe one. <laughs> so, you know, it's good to hear the criticism and be like, yeah, probably, probably. So anyway, I'm really glad to have been on your, on your show again. And th thank you. Um, um, I'll be happy to come back next time. Thank you. So good to see you. Great to see you too.